Right, we're going to look at 1 Kings 13. It's an interesting and unusual story, and I will read the whole story because it's quite gripping in its own way. We're going to look at, I'm looking at the early chapters, well, mid-chapters of 1 Kings, and we're looking at some of the challenges there. We saw Solomon and we saw Jeroboam challenges about compromise in terms of complacency and in terms of expediency, doing what's just convenient, comfortable. And actually, we ended up two weeks ago looking at Jeroboam, who really made up his own religion. And it really is very contemporary, actually, very postmodern in a way. He just did whatever he wanted. He chose priests that he wanted. He, he did all sorts of weird things that suited him, um, which, of course, is not how you do it. God's laid down very clear instructions in the Old Testament. They were clearly about the one place at Jerusalem, the one temple where you could worship God. In our day, it's the one person, Jesus Christ, who we've already been praising and worshipping, the one way to God. Well, Jeroboam didn't take any notice of the instructions. And so what happens is that God sends a prophet, I think probably a younger prophet, because there's an old and a young prophet in this chapter, a prophet from Judah to Jeroboam, right when he's in the middle of one of his strange services at Bethel, where he's doing a, a... he's performing an offering, which he should never do, only the priest should do it. It's to a bull calf, which is totally off the wall, and, it, and it's in the wrong place, Bethel. And he's in the middle of this ceremony when in bursts the man of God from Judah. So I'm going to read from verse 1, but I'm going to read the whole story of 1 Kings 13. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. That same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out towards the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, come home with me and have something to eat and I'll give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel, whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the road which the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And then when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, Well, come home with me and eat. 
The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, oh, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that you may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back, and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat and drink. Therefore your body will not be buried in the tomb of your father's. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. So he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown down on the road, both beside, with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body thrown down there and the lion standing beside the body, and they went and reported it to the city where the old prophet lived. When the old prophet, who had brought him back from his journey, heard of it, he said, it's the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him, as the word of the Lord had warned him. The prophet said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they did so. Then he went out and found the body thrown down on the road, with the donkey and the lion beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. Then he laid the body in his own tomb and they mourned over him and said, And oh, my brother, after burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines in the high places in the towns of Samaria, that word will certainly come true. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high, priest, for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. It's a powerful story and it's a sobering one. And actually I want to look this morning at what I've called compromise and religiosity. Now if you don't know what the word religiosity means, not being rude to you because I wasn't sure myself, it sort of came to me in a moment and I looked it up in a dictionary. But I was right. (laughs) Religiosity means spurious or sentimental religion. Spurious or sentimental religion. And this particular character today, we've looked at Solomon, we've looked at Jeroboam, the man of God, the young prophet, the man of God, is undone by spurious and sentimental religion. He's undone by a religious argument. It's quite fascinating and it's quite challenging. And I want to look at it this morning. We're looking at the man of God, the young prophet. I want to have three basic points. The first one is no compromise, which is really our theme through all these weeks. And I want to start off by looking at how well he did, this young man of God, in the first part of the story. He comes from Judah, which is the place where Jerusalem is, where God is worshipped. He comes out of a place of truth where God is honoured and worshipped correctly, although it's not perfect by any means, I hasten to say. And God sends him against this place of idolatry and false religion 
which is at Bethel, where Jeroboam is sacrificing. And he's bold and he's courageous. Signs and wonders are performed. There is this breaking open of the altar and all the ashes spilling out. There is the the, the sort of shriveling of Jeroboam's arm, this amazing defense that God gives. As Jeroboam gets his anger and says his soldiers seize him, so his arm shrivels. The Holy Spirit just does something. God just does something. And then he gets very, very frightened, Jeroboam, and says, oh, pray for me, please. The man of God prays for him and his arm is healed. And Jeroboam is very impressed and very subdued and thoughtful as a result. And so things go very well in this dramatic part of the story. This man of God is moving in power. He certainly is in harmony with the will of God. And the authority of God's word is with him. But he is not merely bringing God's word to other people. In verse 9, it tells us this. He says of himself, I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. That's on our uh, slide. Sorry, uh, I'm going to be keeping you on your toes today. I'm sorry, Rick. Is it up there? No, don't worry. I won't worry about it. But I know I'm going to be jumping about. Best of luck. (laughs) We don't believe in luck, do we? Okay, right. So, basically, he also is under the authority of God's word. He was clearly told, let's bring it to other people, he also is under it. He was clearly told not to get involved in the mixture, the muddle, the sin, the compromise, which is Jeroboam and Bethel with his man-made religion. If the man of God ate there or had fellowship with them, what it would do would show that he was condoning this apostate religion. If he sat down and ate and fellowshiped, it would show that he was comfortable with it, basically, that he, he was prepared to fellowship with something that was anathema to God and that God had brought a judgment against. And, of course, that would have undermined the word of judgment that he had brought. It would be particularly undermining if he had responded as he didn't do with Jeroboam, but unfortunately did do with the old prophet, if he responded very early on, before there had been any evidence of any change in the life of Jeroboam. We'll come on to this later, but God has a a merciful purpose, actually, in trying to challenge Jeroboam not to continue on the path of destruction. And actually, real repentance always means real action. And there needs to be time. At the moment, Jeroboam's pretty scared and pretty impressed with the arm business, but he's not doing anything. And so it's very unwise of somebody like the man of God to sort of say, fine, as you're a bit shaken up, we'll have dinner together and, uh, you know, maybe things won't be so bad in the future. That's not the message he's to give. He's to leave it as a challenge until Jeroboam makes some positive moves to put things right, which obviously hasn't happened yet. So it's very clear about the situation. Let me just say for all of us as Christians, we have a call on our lives, just like this man of God. We are under authority from God. We have been commissioned to take the gospel to the people around us. We really haven't got a massive choice about it. God said to us, tell them of my love. It's, a, it's an easier message in some ways than the one this man had to bring, but it is sometimes uncomfortable and disturbing to people, undoubtedly. We have a call on our lives to tell people that there is hope, there is salvation, but that things are pretty serious. And if they don't turn to God, 
things will get worse. We've been called to bring something that's not unlike this. Now, let me be very clear. This disturbing, challenging interruption of the man of God from Judah is a sign of God's mercy and God's love. What God is after is repentance through Jeroboam, and not only Jeroboam, but the ten tribes of Israel that he leads. God is looking to save them from imminent destruction. They are on a path to real trouble. They're doing everything wrong. The judgment of God is hanging over them. And actually, they must be woken up to what's happening and encouraged to put things right before it's too late. And that is the purpose of this. This is not some point-scoring thing. The man of God from Judah is not going there just to to mock or to, to make things uncomfortable. The whole purpose is that Jeroboam should change. And this is the sober, sad truth of this story. Because of the man of God's later compromise, it would seem, by the last verses I read to you, Jeroboam didn't take the warning seriously. He just continued as he was, and it was shrugged off. And in the end, that led to not only the destruction of Jeroboam and his family, but the judgment of the whole of those ten tribes of Israel. This was very, very big stakes, high stakes. It was very important that the man of God clearly explained the judgment or the challenge and his life backed up what he was saying. That was vital. That is vital for us, brothers and sisters, young and old. We have vital news for people. It is news about God's love. It really is. If if I could just read you a few verses from John 3. Just listen to this. They're not on the PowerPoint, just to confuse you, Ree. But if I just read these. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. There's a soberness to that beautiful passage. It's saying that God's love and mercy is desiring that everybody be saved. But to be saved means that you are in a situation that needs being saved from. And that is part of our message to people. All of us are sinful. All of us have done things that are not right. All of us stand, as it were, under the judgment of God. There is a sort of cloud over us. Now, it works out in a multitude of ways, but there is a sense in which we're all under a curse. This was a sort of curse in 1 Kings 13. Not a a witch's curse, but a, a curse of God against sin. And there's that element to our humanity. One of the problems with our world and the things that go wrong in it is we are sinners and we're out of joint with God. And we're not where we should be. Now, our message is, wake up to that fact, be alert, and there is hope. And the hope is you get right with God. The hope is, as to Jeroboam, get yourself sorted out with God first. And there is a way of doing that through Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel's about. Jesus came to die for us. God so loved us that he sent Jesus to die for our sins. And through faith in him, believing in him, we can be saved. Wonderfully saved. 
Now that message is uncomfortable because you've got to explain to people there is a problem. You've got to explain to people there is a sin problem. There is a, a judgment of God. That actually the reason Jesus died on the cross was he bore our sins. He bore the judgment for our sins. There's a soberness, there's a discomfort, there's a disturbing. What happens here is Jeroboam's little world is disturbed. He's got it all sorted out. It's all nonsense, but he's got it sorted out. He does the sacrifices. He's at Bethel. He has the cows. He does it all right. All neat and tidy. And in comes something and says, this is terrible. Get yourself right with God. And actually, the disturbance is for good. And some of you may sometimes have felt disturbed. Some of you may be coming to an alpha or even something like that. And you think, this is disturbing me. Well, it can be good to be disturbed. (laughs) It is in this case. You need to know that you're in a serious position and you can be in a safe position by putting faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's what the man of God was doing and that's what he did effectively, really, when he came to Jeroboam. He obeyed God and he was very clear in what he did. But sadly, this man of God does not continue to be consistent through the story. He ultimately compromises. To compromise is to partially surrender your position. To partially surrender your position. And there's a big lesson here for all of us. In verse 21, later in the story, the old prophet pronounces that he has defied the word of the Lord, which seems a very strong thing to say to someone who does do pretty well in the first part of the story. But the fact is that only partial obedience is the same as disobedience. Now that's sobering for all of us as Christians, and for all of us full stop. You know, we often think, well, I don't do too badly here, I'm quite good there, or I I was good for a while and then I let it slip. But but all of these things are not ways of defending failure and, and compromise. This man of Judah ends up judged because he does lose it later in the story. He did so well when he was facing up to Jeroboam. But later, he gives in to the temptation from the old prophet. And that ends up as disobedience. And it's quite a challenge. Let me just apply that briefly to our own lives. In Romans 6 and verse 6, it says this. This is for Christians. For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Here is the truth. If you are a real Christian and love Jesus, you don't have to sin. Now, I know we do. I know I do. I I let things slip. And I I have to say, Lord, I'm sorry, and we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive. But the fact is, when you're a Christian, you have changed. The Holy Spirit has come into you. Something has radically changed. The body of sin is sort of broken, or the power of sin is broken. And we do not have to be slaves to sin. We can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We need to positively set our minds to walk in the Spirit and obey God. And if we mess about with sin and the world, then we're the same as this man of God. Men and women of God should not be eating and drinking at Bethel. That's the message he got. 
And that's our message. There are times, brothers and sisters, when we have to stand clear from stuff. And think, we are not slaves to sin. We don't mess with it. We don't say, well, I'm, I'm good about this, but I'm, I let it slip on that. That's not, that's not how it is. We need to be consistently clear that we are not slaves to sin. We say no to unrighteousness by the grace of God. And we follow Jesus. We are fu- fu- following the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. There is no sort of half measures. If we give in in some ways, but not in others, that's as bad as the whole thing, which is what happens here. Let's quickly go on to what the temptation was. The temptation to compromise. Now, this man of God has two temptations. They're pretty obvious. Two clear temptations that come to him in this context. The first one is an open offer. And that's in verse 7 from King Jeroboam. So we go on to verse 7. There we are. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me and have something to eat, and I will give you a gift. Now, that is an open appeal, and it's quite a powerful one, actually. It's a significant temptation. The man of God would probably have been hungry and tired. He'd just been involved in a major confrontation. Now, although he'd seen God do wonderful things, that is emotionally draining. That is quite exhausting. He'd stood up to the king. He'd seen God shrivel the king's arm. He'd prayed and interceded. I don't know how long that took. The king was healed. The altar split open. It was pretty amazing stuff. And and even if he was on a high, which I guess he was, it was a sort of draining experience in a way. Now Jeroboam was quite humble and subdued and scared. And, and, And you've got the king sort of looking to you for a bit of, encouragement and saying, would you come and and eat with me and drink with me and I will give you a gift. Now that gift would probably not be a minor gift coming from King Jeroboam. But the man of God was clear what the word of God had said to him. And and here he says it in verse 8. But 1 Kings 13, 8. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. He was very clear that he was not to compromise with this. And so the open invitation to sin, the open invitation to compromise, he resisted completely. No, I'm not going. He said, I'm not going back to this cursed place. He knew it was a curse of God, which was not yet lifted because there was no evidence of repentance as yet. He realized this was a fear reaction of Jeroboam's. It wasn't a long-term reaction, not yet anyway. And so he wasn't going to soften the blow, if you like, and compromise. Now, to be honest, we don't all do as well as this young man of God. In fact, he's a good example in this part of the story, very much so. We can easily fall for this open temptation. Temptation to material things, temptation to to honor uh, and being lauded by people. And compromise our testimony, compromise God's word to, to have people's favor and to have uh, maybe the material things that they're offering. We can be vulnerable. Can I just say honestly, we can be vulnerable to offers of compromise from friendly people who have not yet changed and shown themselves to be serious about God. Over my years as a church pastor, I've seen on a number of occasions, actually, I've seen men and women, young and old, really compromised in areas of sex or marriage even. 
where someone says quite quickly they want to be a Christian. They just show a bit of interest uh, in church and quite quickly the Christian person jumps into bed with them or even gets married to them and you realise later on it's not a proper confession of faith by the other party. It was done as a feigned thing just to to win favour. Now you say, oh, that's a bit harsh. Well, it's painful when you watch it happen. And uh, to be honest, it's not always true. I've also seen people who come along and get saved and then very happily marry and there's a Christian marriage. But the point is you can't tell early on. That's the point. You can't, you, you know, there's wishful thinking and you, and you early on think, oh yeah, they, they came along to the Alpha. Let's, 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 do, let's do what you know probably you shouldn't be doing at that point. And you need to really keep to God's word, which obviously is clear about the sexual relations outside of marriage. They shouldn't be happening. But it's probably clear in a more fundamental way about how closely you, you join yourself to someone who's not yet believing in Jesus. And certainly perhaps that you don't marry them until you're clear about their faith. And there needs to be time. And it's what this man of God does right here. He says, right, I'm not getting involved, Jeroboam, until it's clearer. Just because you're a bit shaken up, I'm not having your food or your material gifts. So he's a good example here. He's resolute and clear. But then comes the subtle appeal. The subtle appeal is in verse 18. And it's a bit strange, but it's actually quite near to home as well, because it is a spiritual or religious argument. Look at verse 18. This is a subtle appeal. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that you may eat bread and drink water. Brackets. But he was lying to him. I think in the original it's very blunt. He's a liar. He lied. It's a challenge, this one. This subtle temptation is dressed up in spiritual disguise, religious disguise. And the man of God who resisted the open temptation falls for this one. Verse 19 tells us, So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. Sometimes... We have the courage, and I think this is true of all of us as Christians. You need to be thoughtful about this. Sometimes we have the courage and willpower to face major tests, but we lack sense for the more subtle dilemmas. We all need not only the power of God, but the wisdom of God. We really do need to have wisdom. Power is important. This young man knew power and praise God he did. And it was a challenge to Jeroboam that could potentially have saved the nation. Could have done. But he needed also to be wise and to stick to what he knew was right even when a totally different pressure built around him. The old prophet said religious arguments. I'm also a prophet. An angel came and spoke to me and told me to tell you to come back and eat. Contradicting, of course, what the word of God that the man of God had had originally. And actually, startlingly, we're told it was just a lie. just wasn't true. Do you know, in this world, there are things that are true and not true. I believe this is the truth. 
You call me naive, you call me old-fashioned, but I believe this is the truth. Sure, it needs a bit of interpretation, understanding, but essentially the word of God is the truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. Things that contradict the word of God are not true. I don't care how subtly they're put, how religiously they're dressed up, how wisely they're they're presented, they are not true. You need to know the truth. The truth is what keeps you free. But how did this man of God ever get to this position? What did he do wrong? We do need to understand. Well, I think there are some quite significant clues in the story. Look at verse 14. The old prophet rides after him. It says, he rode after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. Now, when you read that, that seems straightforward, and it is straightforward at one level. Let me give you a bit of background information, though. Bethel is only about seven miles from Judah. Now, Marion and I have managed to walk more than seven miles several times this week. Now, I know we're strong and fit, but to be honest, seven miles is not far. It's not far. What on earth is he doing lingering in the area of apostasy? He knows clearly, he's spoken clearly and honestly and with great power to Jeroboam. And the words he brings are pretty uncompromising words. Why is he sitting under an oak tree still in the area of Bethel? Because that's where he is. He's only got about a three-hour walk to get back to Judah, maybe four, depending on how hot it is. He's only got quite a short walk for those days to get back to safety and where God is in Judah. Why is he sitting under an oak tree in the danger zone? Because that is exactly what he is doing. And he knows it's not a good place. He uses a scornful phrase in, chat, in verse 16, and it's, it, it's not on the PowerPoint, but it, it's the second part of the verse. He says, I've been told not to eat and drink water with you in this place. And it's a scornful term, in this place, this place of sin, this place of idolatry. Fine, what are you doing sitting in this place then? You know, if this place is a place of judgment because it's idolatry, don't hang around there. Get out. If he'd moved out, as God told him to, take a different route and go straight back home, if he'd done that, He wouldn't have been in the environment for the old prophet to come clocking up on his donkey. Oh, there he is, under the tree. Hello. (laughs) We'll talk about the old prophet next week. We're going to talk about the old prophet next week. Because there's a lot to say about him. That's next week. He comes up, hello. Oh, are you the man of God? Yes, I am. I'm the one who did all the stuff down with Jeroboam, you know. Oh, right. Yeah, well, I'd like it. I'd like to have a bit of what you've got. <laughs> Would you like to come back and pray for me? And, and whatever he said, and off we went. But he shouldn't have been there under the tree. Now, he was obviously tired. He was probably thirsty because he'd been told not to eat or drink there, though he should have brought water with him, shouldn't he? But he, he was tired and thirsty, but he should, at whatever the cost, have got out of the problem zone. That's what he should have done. He should have got out of the zone of danger. He probably felt pretty exhausted. I said that earlier. Can I say to all of you, brothers and sisters, beware of the sheer vulnerability of being tired. 
Beware of the sheer vulnerability of being tired and hungry, or the equivalent. Having low blood sugar. Being in the anticlimax after a high. A high at work, you've done a big deal, it's been a long day, you've had a difficult interview, and you've got through it. Whatever it is, always beware of those moments. That's exactly this sort of moment. He's had a huge victory, he's stood up to the king, he's even resisted the king's temptation. But he is now sitting, exhausted, I would imagine, under the shadow of a tree. And he's vulnerable to a totally different approach. We're all the same. Just think calmly and clearly. Don't start flicking through the television channels after a long day. Wife's gone to bed. It's 11 o'clock at night. Let's see what's on or what's on the internet. You know what's on there. Don't look. You know, it's really important that we do understand that even ourselves, uh, the best of us, and this is a good guy, can be vulnerable when we're tired, exhausted, maybe hungry, just that moment of anticlimax. Perhaps this man of God felt a bit sorry for himself. I've certainly been known to feel sorry for myself and have a little bit of a pity party. And I wonder if he was sitting there thinking over the day, playing over in his mind what had happened. Perhaps he had mixed feelings about saying no to Jeroboam now, but what I could have done with some of his food and drink. And I wonder really, if perhaps he was repentant. Maybe I've been a bit harsh. If I'd gone back, I might have persuaded him a bit further. I mean, I'm making it up, of course. But he was sitting there thinking over the things, probably a bit regretful, maybe, of being quite so bold in saying no to the king's offer of a gift. Do you ever do that? Do you ever allow yourself to keep playing over in your mind things? What if I hadn't become a Christian? What if I hadn't married? Difficult time at home, difficult period in marriage. What if I'd chosen not to get married? What if I had taken that job that I felt was the wrong one but looked pretty good? What if I'd done that? What if I'd not gone to church? What if I'd perhaps taken up that offer I had? There's a decision you knew was right, but in this time you're sort of lingering, in this time of downtime, difficult time. I tell you, don't do it. You've got to have a discipline with your mind. Don't linger in the danger zone. The New Testament is very clear. The New Testament, hear me, not the Old Testament, has given some clear instructions about fleeing. There are some things you just flee. Some things you don't mess with. Here's three of them mentioned in the New Testament. Sexual immorality. You just get out. You don't mess around. You don't play on the edge of it. You don't stay in the zone, danger zone. Idolatry, interesting, is another one mentioned in the New Testament. Idolatry. And the other one is the love of money, 1 Timothy 6.11. These are things you flee from. You just don't mess with them. You don't play about. You don't keep thinking over. I wonder if I would have been better off to make that deal. Maybe if I hadn't been quite so honest, I would have made more money and whatever or whatever. You just close the book. You just obey God, whatever the cost. And you turn your mind to other things. You do not say, maybe I married the wrong person. You didn't. The person you are married to is the right person, full stop. There is no other answer. And I'm not playing with words, that's the fact. You are in covenant commitment together. You do not sit there thinking, maybe what happened if I'd done this different? And start undermining the very relationship that's already a bit shaky. You don't do it. Some things you flee, you close the book on it, you don't 
turn the telly on if you know you're vulnerable at that time of night. You don't start the internet and start searching, looking to see what's on certain words. You just don't do it because you know it's a flea moment. You just flee. You don't sort of sit there lingering like this guy did. There's a terse simplicity to the verse that tells us what he did. In verse 19 it says, but he went back, what, what, let me read it. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. The, the writer doesn't particularly criticise him, but it, it stands implied. Implied is, can you believe it? By the sheer way it's written, there's that implication. He just did it. He just, just went. And you know, sometimes there are Christians like you think, why did they do that? He just did it. He just fell for it. He just fell for it. Well, although the beginning was clearly the lingering, the second thing, and there won't be many, but just the second thing that I notice is that he was open to religious deception or spiritual deception. He allows this old prophet to make counter-revelationary claims that undermine what he previously knew to be the word of God. And I was preparing this. I just felt there are some people here who are vulnerable to this problem. You're very good at resisting the open temptation. But I want to challenge you this morning. I believe there are young prophets here who see what is wrong and speak out against it. But they are also fascinated by spiritual arguments and can be sidetracked by spiritual arguments. They are vulnerable to religious temptations. And they can end up going away from things that they once knew were the word of God to do with basic aspects of church life or Christian life. Just want to warn you, there are young prophets amongst us. There are men of God who are very, very clear in seeing stuff. And it's wonderful. We need the Jeroboam moments. But also, you must be careful. You are fascinated by arguments and religious sort of arguments, spiritual arguments. We must be careful. There are many siren calls, even in so-called Christian circles or real Christian circles. People will call us to not go overboard and be too extreme. That is a very common call. Don't be too extreme. It's a bit like this old prophet saying, what, aren't you even able to eat and drink with me, a fellow prophet? And, you know, people will say, surely you're not that radical, that over the top, are you? There can be calls for unity, and I have to battle with these, and I have to battle sometimes with, are they at the expense of truth? I constantly think about that. Not, not every day, when the issues come up. Sorry, I don't want to imply I'm losing sleep over it. I'm not. But when the issues come up, I constantly have to think, God, what is the balance here? You sometimes think, oh, it's easy, and it's unity. It's not always unity. This is two prophets. The old prophet is totally compromised. He is living with idolatry and doing nothing about it. That's what we're going to look at next week. He's living with it. He's compromised already. So the the man of God has got to be very sharp with him. And he's out of his compromise. He's issuing all sorts of spurious arguments that are so-called religious. And we do have to live with that tension. I do. I love some of the unity stuff that we enjoy. And yet there's times when I think, how do I draw the lines here, Lord? I don't want to be like the young prophet from Judah. Now, you may think, well, that's my battle, perhaps not yours. But you have to think about it sometimes. There's all sorts of areas 
There are spiritual sounding arguments. People who talk about dreams and visions and words from the Lord that have got no basis in biblical truth. And they can be very impressive. Like this guy. I've had an angel tell me to tell you to come back. Well, yeah, but that's not what God's saying. And I think we need to be sharp. We need to be alert. And then there are the intellectual arguments. And these are very common today. Arguments, sophistry, I would call them sometimes, that undermine the cross, undermine the, 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 the um, sort of aspects of the atonement that Jesus bore our sins on the cross, undermine church and what church is. I'm not saying church is exactly what we do, but undermine aspects of church that are fundamental. Undermine sexuality. How many Christians now would argue, it seems, that practicing homosexual sex is okay in certain contexts. And you think, well, what is the Bible saying on these things? And we can easily be trapped into thinking, this is okay. This is, this is a spiritual argument. It's coming from a religious figure. He knows his stuff. We must embrace it. No, we don't live like that. We live by the Bible. There ought to be a simplicity which is embarrassing. There used to be a little old phrase, I think Billy Graham used to use it, the Bible says. And it's very easy to sneer at it. I can do it. So I think, yeah, it says you, who says to who? He thinks it says that. He thinks it says that. No, there's many things in there that are very, very clear. And we live by what the Bible says, don't we? And we have to keep to what the Bible says. And we have to avoid the deflections that come. Because, finally, the cost of compromise can be very great. Let's quickly look at it. The man of God's disobedience to the clear command cost him dear. It's in verse 24. I think I'll go on your screen. A lion met him on the road and killed him. But what is really, I think, a very painful aspect of this is that the judgment came from the old prophet. So in verse 21, it's the old prophet that speaks out, the one who's got him back for the meal, the one who's sort of undermined him, he says, a genuine word for the Lord, you have defied the word of the Lord, have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you, and he issues the judgment. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, quite sobering stuff, I know, this is often true, that the tempter becomes the tormentor. That is often true. It's often true of experience, that that which is attractive and beguiling, but contrary to God's will, will in the end destroy you, will in the end become a misery to you, whether it's material possessions, worldly honour, or that boyfriend or girlfriend who isn't a Christian, or that wife or husband who, doesn't, uh, who you marry who isn't a Christian, that which seems so beguiling can become a tormentor to you. Just like this old prophet, the very one who got him back, is the one who brings the word, you're going to be judged, is the tormentor. And it's so often that way. And we need to be careful. Satan draws us to sin, but then he drives us to despair. He really does. He allures us, but then he tries to destroy us. And the punishment seems great. You think, this guy was quite a good guy. How come he got killed by a lion? Well, let me tell you briefly, there's a few important sobering truths here. His offence was great as well. If the punishment seems great, so was the offence. You see, he knew what he was doing. He disobeyed God's clearly expressed word and he knew what he was doing. So he showed a low regard for God himself. 
He knowingly had fellowship with that which he knew God hated. He knew, because he expressed it himself to Jeroboam, that this was something God said, don't get into it. And in the end, he did get into it, and he knew what he was doing. So God's name was compromised through what he did, and very seriously, it would seem that he undermined any possibility of Jeroboam changing his ways. That's only implied, but at the end of the chapter, Jeroboam keeps on steaming on the road to destruction. So it's a costly mistake. And there are sober consequences when we deliberately sin. Look at this scripture of Jesus, which is, I think, pretty challenging. I always find it very challenging. Luke 12, verses 47 to 48. Just read it to you. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. And this last sentence. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That's challenging. That's challenging to Christians like you and me, most of us in this room. It's challenging to mature, knowledgeable Christians like me and many of you. It's challenging to Christian leaders or ex-leaders like me, like many of you. It is challenging stuff. Jesus said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This young man of God blew it. Actually, he didn't blow it, you could argue, as bad as Jeroboam. Jeroboam's time will come later. But there is a a, a quickness to this because God is backing up his word. This guy is knowingly compromising. And I think there's a real warning. Now, let me me just say, this warning is for our good. I've, I've been stirred this summer about how many warnings there are in the Bible. Two Christians. <laughs> but let's think about warnings. Let's think of an obvious warning, a cliff edge. Danger, cliff edge. So there is a warning, danger, cliff edge. Now, why is that warning there? Well, it's not there to encourage people to jump over, is it? Oh, let's see whether it really is true. That's not the purpose of the warning. It's not there on the expectation that half the people are going to fall over this cliff. That's not the purpose of the warning. The warning is there with the objective that no one falls over the cliff and is motivated by a desire to preserve and protect people. That's the whole purpose of the warning. It's there to protect and it's there to stop anybody falling over a cliff. Now, I think God's warnings are exactly the same. Old and New Testament. And I think this is a key sometimes to understanding some of the warnings in the New Testament. They are themselves means of grace. They are there out of love to preserve us. Don't do that. It's disastrous. Don't go that way. It leads to destruction. Don't jump over the cliff. It's a long way down. They don't reflect any desire for God to see us come to a cropper nor do they reflect an expectation that loads of people are going to go over this and half the people may not make it. It's not like that. It is an actual means of grace. Warnings are a means of grace. 
Now get that if you don't get anything else. In other words, God's saying, I'm warning you, keep on the path. I'm warning you, keep on the path. I'm warning you, don't compromise. He said, why does he do that? Well, he wants to look after you. He's, He's dealing with you as you are. He is providing a means of grace. I don't want to turn away from Jesus. I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to stick to the word of God. God's saying, this is one of the ways I keep you on the path. I give you warnings. I don't want you over the cliff, so I keep you on the path. They are themselves means of grace. And that is what I believe this is meant to be. It's an Old Testament story. It's there for our warning. We're told that in Corinthians. These things are for our warning and instruction. And it challenges us that we need to be aware of subtle temptations and we need to stick closely to what we clearly know is right. And if it was right in one context, it's right in another context. So if it was right when Jeroboam offered me material gain, it's right when this old prophet gives me his blather, which is a load of lies, about what he's met from an angel, had from an angel. And actually, it's right whatever way. Amen? Right, that's a sober word, isn't it? Let's stand together. We'll have the musicians up. Sorry, I've run out of time nearly. Just time for a song. Let's stand together.